We'd like to thank Cassiopeia Books for sponsoring Voices and Views. They are located at 606 Central Avenue in downtown Great Falls. Besides being a place to find your favorite books, they also host events with authors, book clubs, and local groups weekly. For special orders or more information, you can reach them at 315-1515. Welcome to Voices and Views on Great Falls Public Radio, KGPR 89.9. Today on the show, I have the honor of interviewing the Honorable Judge Elizabeth Best. Judge Best, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Thomas. So I talk a lot about a culture of contempt that I view we've been emerging in our society, where people don't take the time to understand folks' values They just see a a little snippet on social media and they make broad generalizations about who that person is, what they stand for that are fundamentally inaccurate. One thing I really relish on this show is the opportunity to understand people, especially prominent folks in our community like yourself, leaders, what their values are, how they were developed. So could you tell our listeners a little bit, you know, where were you born? What was childhood like? Sure. Um, Well, I was actually born in uh, Kentucky because my dad was uh, in the army at that point. And uh, we stayed in Kentucky until I was about four. And then we moved to uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is where my dad was working. He was uh, an internist who had just been licensed fairly recently. And then uh, within a year we moved to uh, Great Falls and I've been here ever since. My mom is from Great Falls, so um, it's a, it, it's home. Absolutely. And so what, what were some experiences you had in, in Great Falls growing up that kind of informed the person you are today? Um, well, I, I grew up, I, li- I grew up in a house in Riverview with um, three siblings, uh, went to eight different schools from the same house in Riverview because we were boomers and uh, we got bussed all over town, the whole neighborhood, the whole neighborhood did. And uh, I uh, graduated from CM Russell High School in 1974 and then went to Montana State uh, University for college and then the University of Montana for law school. So uh, all pretty much Montana experiences through that period of time. Absolutely. So when did you kind of develop uh, this passion for the rule of law and the judiciary? When did that start? I think it was, I think I always um, uh, had a sense, a fundamental sense of fairness, but I don't, I think I was a late bloomer in terms of having a sense of what I wanted to do for a living. Uh, It took me uh, probably until I was graduating from college before I I thought that I probably had better have a plan and uh, uh, pretty belatedly decided to take the LSAT and and go to law school. Uh, But I I remember having some thoughts about uh, being a lawyer when I was in junior high and then thought that I uh, didn't know that I could handle public speaking or being in front of people. So Uh, put that off for a while and just decided to be um, more impulsive in my thinking, I guess, as a lot of young people are. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad you decided uh, the law was for you because it's been it's been quite a journey. And so 
when you graduated law school, where did you start out your career? Well, my husband and I met um, uh, actually in our um, co-ed um, football team at, in law school, which was um, known as Irre Irreversible Brain Damage was the name of the team. Uh, so we met there and then we decided to, uh, we wanted to do a little bit of uh, getting out of Montana, just seeing the world a little bit. And we went into the army uh, straight out of law school. We were commissioned as captains and uh, ended up in uh, Frankfurt, Germany, uh, Federal, Federal Republic of Germany. Uh, I served uh, in headquarters V Corps, which is in Frankfurt, and he was in the trial defense service. So he was traveling all over the place, but we lived in the same location. And it was it was a great experience. Uh, got to just about every country in, in uh, Western Europe while we were there. And it was it was worth it for the perspective, I think. And this is Cold War Germany. Right? It was while well, the wall was still up. Yes, we actually saw the wall, um, stood at the wall, uh, went through Checkpoint Charlie on a couple of trips. And uh, it was a uh, it was a really eye-opening experience for kids from Montana, I think, to just realize, A, how small the world is, really, and B, how different our lives are from people whose families were separated during the Cold War. Literally, the wall went up virtually overnight, and families were separated um, for decades, which is just uh, tragically remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, you know, you start to lose an understanding of the roots of uh, how the Cold War kicked off, right, where we right. were allies, of course, in fighting the Germans. And so after the, the, the war, you know, these were the victorious allies, and it just slowly, you know, started the tensions emerge early on, right. But then I think this is in 1949, really, that right. they do the Ber Berlin Airlift where the Soviets said, we're not going to allow you to bring in rail supplies to West Berlin. And so if you're a resident, I mean, just imagine even on a place like Great Falls, where just sort of overnight, they say, OK, this other side of the city, you know, you're going to need a pass first. And right. then, you know, well, we're not going to allow you to have food delivered and, and how that it's such a human experience. And we drove through East Germany to get through, get into Berlin, which is a, a really surreal experience. And getting into Berlin in places, it feels as though you're in a World War II black and white movie. You know, you can still see bread lines in East Berlin. And it's just a, um, a really eye-opening historical kind of experience for, um, you know, when you're growing up, I think, especially in Montana, you don't feel as touched by the rest of the world as um, other countries do. The day we landed, the Shah of Iran was assassinated, and all of a sudden, uh, that was relevant because we were on that side of the world. Yeah, I think Americans, you know, it is like we're a continental country, right? And so, for instance, in Montana, probably more than anywhere that I've ever lived, certainly, you know, you go four hours and you're in Billings, right? When you're in, you know, Europe, right, you go a similar distance, you know, I don't know if that's about 300 miles or something, and you've gone through, Multiple you know, countries. four countries. Yeah. Germany is the size of Oregon, just for perspective, which is hard to really even uh, put your put your arms around. Yeah. And we think, and that's the big continental power of Europe, right? That's the 80 million behemoth. And I think it's something that we kind of don't always appreciate, right? Is, right. is how vast 
uh, our spaces, especially relative to the size of our population. Yeah, I agree. So you get, you're doing the the JAG, right? And right. then how many years did you serve in the military? Just um, 39 months, three years in a, in a little change. And so my service there was, you know, they move people around in, uh, in your assignments, regardless of what you're doing, whether you're a lawyer or not. So I, uh, for a while was prosecuting. I, um, did a lot of wills for soldiers. I did a lot of separation agreements for soldiers. For a period of time, I taught the law of war, which was um, kind of abandoned around 2001, I think, in a way, uh, in terms of enemy combatants, or it appeared that way to me. And then I also liaisoned with German prosecutors. Um, they didn't prosecute too many soldiers, but they retained jurisdiction of some soldiers uh, under the NATO SOFA agreement. And so I attended some of those trials and liaison with the prosecutors. And I want to go on a little rabbit hole here on the law of war, because I do think, so I think of like Grotius as sort of the father of this thinking, right? On, well, we have kind of as humans, yes, we understand that wars happen, but we're all going to agree that play we're fair. Gonna not do these certain inhumane things. And and I think what you're alluding to is after 9-11, you can see that people that are scared, they throw out the rule book. Correct. Fear, I think we see fear as a motivator uh, throughout civilization. The reptilian brain. Absolutely. And I tell folks that fear is our greatest motivator. And if you think of it over the long stretch of humanity, right, the the issue that we see is that we will fear things and it tells us that this is life-threatening. Right. That simply are not. But but it, something that our policymakers, all of us need to be aware of is that I always say fear is a liar, right? Fear will make you make bad decisions. And you see this throughout, right? I mean, I think, was it uh, FDR that said, you know, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Um, but I think that's a lesson modern day that we've seen about a, a very advanced, you know, democratic society that went through a traumatic event and and how quickly things can change. Right. The, in the expediency of fear and some of that we still don't really grapple with. I mean, I think of these a lot of the Patriot Act, the FISA courts. Right. And, you know, if people that's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance right. Act court that really affects our civil liberties and the way we treat non-combatants and whatnot that- We have to think about how all of those things affect us in other contexts. Very much so. I, I think that that's, uh, we were talking before the show of how, you know, we almost can take for granted the rule of law, right? As you hear so much in the United States, rightfully so, that these are core aspects of of us as Americans, right, is liberty and democracy. Right. But that that rule of law being a, you know, not just the force, right, the person with the loudest voice and the biggest stick, but that we have a common law, case law by independent judges that, you know, in combination with juries, right, and, and attorneys, but both prosecutors and, and defenders and public defenders, that is how we govern society, how unusual that is in human history and how precious it is. I tell juries when they first arrive how important they are and, and what an important part of the system they are. And I, I don't think we always realize that it's one of 
many of us serve in the military. That's one huge way to serve our country and our state and our community. But the other, the other basic way we serve our country and our community and our state is uh, to serve as jurors and to set the community standard together with our neighbors and our friends and our friend, our relatives and um, people who we rub elbows with every day, but we may not know. We set our standards together. And I don't think we think about it but uh, enough, but it's really an important part of um, maintaining our fundamental democracy. Absolutely. It's, uh, I, I say it's that fish in water, right? That we don't think about the systems around us on a day-to-day -day basis that are ensuring so much of our security, freedom, and prosperity. And yet these things don't just work through inertia, right? It has to be nurtured. We have to, as citizens, constantly replicate and pass on the value of having things like trial by jury, right? Of having the idea of, of Fourth Amendment, right? Whether it's, you know, the warrant requirement. I know you do a lot of that and how important it is because of what things used to be, right? That it was, if the people in power wanted to go somewhere and take, you know, things, people, they did it. Right. And that's the way it worked and how much oppression happened to get to the constitutional document that, that you know, governs us all. And sometimes we don't realize and, and sometimes we don't realize until it may be too late, but we um, this system was set up the, the judicial branch. It is set up in order to prevent tyranny and to stand in the way of the tyranny of the other two branches. And that can be a very uncomfortable place. And it takes uh, courage on the part of juries and it takes courage on the part of um, judges and other people in the system to be willing to um, say something difficult or make a, a difficult but as fair as possible decision. And that's something that you'll look at surveys that I've seen of how many Americans you know, could even name the three branches of government, right? Understand there's executive, legislative, judicial. And it's, a, it's a, I think, a, a little bit alarmingly low number, right? And certainly when you start talking about checks and balances, right, that the idea is, you know, the executive carries out the laws, right? The legislator writes the laws. And then the judiciary sits there and says, well, does this fit with our constitutional order? And how important that is, because, you know, you talk about the tyranny of the majority, you'll hear a lot. And yet, if we don't have a citizenry that gets that mechanism, they will think that, you know, judges are, uh, who are really doing their constitutional duty, are somehow, you know, kind of going out and, and doing something that's against the will of the people, where that's the design. That's right. And and it's, it's especially important because... Um, uh, we have to have some kind of a check on those who have power um, and preventing them from abusing those who have no power. 100%, because I do, that's what, you know, in a democracy is the fear, right? And that's why you have these anti-majoritarian checks like the judiciary is you want to protect minorities. And in some ways, the judiciary, it has no purse strings to speak of. And it has, so in that sense, it has very little power, but it still is required to weigh in um, in order to make sure we're staying consistent and true to our constitutional system, which is really a, 
um, both in Montana and on the at the federal level, really remarkable documents. Absolutely. And foresighted. And so I want, we're going to get back to the broader kind of legal questions that underlie our whole system, you know, as, as Americans. Right. And, and really what's been with us since day one and, and has allowed this, you know, great country to prosper. Um, but I want to clue back in on you because I want our listeners to understand the whole breadth of your journey. So you get out of the military and then where do you go from came, there? Came straight back to Great Falls, um, clerked, both my husband and I clerked for uh, the federal judge here, Paul Hatfield. Um, I clerked for um, a little less time than he did. I stuck around for maybe nine months and then I, I entered private practice. That was actually a plan, uh, just trying to maintain uh, the bill paying ability. And then um, Mike joined me and we've been in, we, we were in private practice from as trial lawyers for um, uh, roughly 30 years. And then uh, then I took the bench in 2016. And I think that that's really important uh, that 30 years you are able to see things in a perspective that someone that say follows a more, you know, kind of academic path or, you know, doesn't have a lot of experience in the actual judicial system, just can't have that life experience. So what type of of law did you practice? Uh, primarily, and I'd say uh, probably 100% representing, early on we did some divorces, did that as little as possible and got out of it as quickly as possible. And then really just um, trial work for individual Montanans who had been injured in one way or the other, um, whether it was civil rights type of work or employment or medical negligence or um, uh, any kind of physical injury that might have occurred in a, any kind of exposure to a, a defective product or a car wreck or something along those lines. Absolutely. And so you have all this experience in a variety of different areas in civil law and then come on the bench. And this is where I, you have great insights in about the kind of day-to-day -day of what's going on in Cascade County that I think our listeners will be really intrigued by. So in Cascade County, how many cases are we seeing as the eighth judicial district? Well, um, we have four judicial, four, eight, four district court judges, and each of us has roughly, uh, it, it ebbs and flows each year, but roughly 1,100, 1,200 cases per year. Um, that includes criminal, um, uh, it's often known as child abuse and neglect, youth in need of care, um, juvenile, uh, criminal, criminal cases, I think I mentioned, civil cases, which is any kind of a dispute between human beings or human beings in an insurance company or corporation or disputes between corporations uh, or um, any, any combination of the above. Uh, adoptions, um, family law, which includes um, uh, divorces and uh, adoptions and parenting plans and uh, periodically uh, orders of protection where we have someone who's feeling threatened by another person. Um, and then a variety of other kinds of um, disputes that come up. And I just want to repeat that again, because I, I was blown away by this. It's 11 to 1200 cases per judge. Correct. That we're carrying, of course, not they don't all end up in the courtroom. They're all in various phases. 
probates are included in those wills. Um, uh, so there, there are a variety of types of cases, but yeah, we each have a pretty good pile. And the wheels of justice are turning on that many. I mean, I think that's the yeah. one that like are at least in the peripheral of, you know, you guys have to be keeping track of all of this. Now, what about staff? You know, do you guys have, you know, how many support staff do you have? Um, we could probably, our support staff needs to be paid more. They are, our support staff for the judiciary are state employees, as are we. Um, and so we each have a judicial assistant, which is um, a similar to, I guess, an executive assistant, and they are keeping multiple balls in the air at any one point in time. They're not only managing our docket and our calendar, which is a, an incredible task just in and of itself, but they're also dealing with people who come to the door, people who call, um, and they're also um, doing uh, tech support, trying to keep our Zoom hearings going, trying to keep our microphones going, trying to communicate with other people in the building. And then we each have a law clerk uh, who are lawyers who help us with research. Everyone uh, works with their law clerk uh, in a different way, but uh, I have a pretty good rhythm with my law clerk and she will do drafts of various kinds of documents um, and then I will finish them. Uh, some, many orders, uh, I just do start to finish myself, um, but we have a good rhythm of working together and just trying to, um, we know that that the primary need on the part of lawyers and parties is that a decision needs to come out of chambers one way or the other. People are, whether they like the decision or not, they at least can do something with it. We know that half the people in the courtroom go away unhappy. It's the nature of the beast, but we have to make a decision and get and promptly get those decisions out. And so that's, uh, has everyone looking like deer in the headlights a little bit. Uh, and then we also have on our staff, each of us has a court reporter who is the person who's responsible for um, maintaining the record. And they also are grossly underpaid and are really working long, hard hours because they're in the court, every hour they're in the courtroom with us, they are not able to work on a transcript. So they're often working on nights and weekends trying to get those out. And that's something I really wanted to pull out is, can you talk about your work habits and your workload, because I, I don't think people have an appreciation for how physically, emotionally, mentally demanding it is to be a judge. Um, first of all, I'm not complaining. This is the best job I've ever had. I really like working with people. I really like working with lawyers. I like lawyers and I've been around lawyers a lot. I think I understand um, what they go through and, and frankly, especially on the criminal side, but true also in the civil side, these, these men and women who are doing this work are under considerable stress and pressure and uh, I can see it in them. It's a different perspective when you're looking at people from the bench and um, you can see the load and the stress that they're carrying on a day-to-day -day basis. And I'm not sure people are, are aware of that, that uh, a lot of people are sacrificing their own health to try to push things forward for them. But for me, my day is probably a little different than other people's days because um, I've always been kind of an early bird. So I get up early in the morning and take Max, my dog, for a walk. And then I am, I am to work by six. 
And I like being there early before the phones start ringing and before anyone else is there because I can write orders. I can get ready for the day. I usually am uh, getting the computer in whatever courtroom I'm assigned to ready. I'm getting files into the courtroom and I'm reviewing files before we get started. And generally, I try to, if I, and this is something we can get to, but if I have a courtroom available to me and I'm scheduled to, for a courtroom, I will start my hearings at eight. And um, we will keep going one after the other with pretty brief breaks until noon, uh, frequently restart then again at one, depending on the day. And um, on we have to alternate days for certain kinds of work because we don't have enough courtrooms. And so we trade. And you have a great idea. I thought that's very intriguing because I, I, I do think, look, if you think about the value that the judiciary plays for us having a just society. It's not one where you want to leave uh, things out there for lack of resources. And so talk about the need for more court space. We could, what we have, we have the a beautiful courtroom and I think Montana has some of the most beautiful courthouses in the, in the country, but um, we have a beautiful courthouse. We have two big um, court rooms that are adequate for jury trials. Um, those are, those are, we trade them around depending on who's, has the need, who has a trial, um, who has the most people in the courtroom. And then we have a medium sized one on the second floor. We have a tiny one also on the third floor with the other two big uh, courtrooms. And that's what we've got. And so we have four judges. Uh, we each have what we call a criminal day. Um, where we just have people stacked almost like hardwood that, you know, it's one after another. We're taking guilty pleas. We're sentencing people. We're um, arraigning people, which means we're reading them their rights and taking their plea. Initially, we're doing initial appearances, which is their first contact with the criminal uh, court. Um, and we're doing sundry hearings uh, of various sorts. And that takes up a lot of time and it is pretty exhausting for everyone concerned. Um, but we have to manage our time wisely. And so we have to trade days um, to get that done. Uh, same thing, we trade days to do our youth in need of care proceedings. And we have a pretty heavy load in Cascade County. I think it's um, probably attributable to a lot of things. We also have a pretty high percentage of folks living in poverty. We have a lot of people, as you well know, uh, who are struggling with addictions. We have a lot of people struggling with mental health problems. We have a lot of people who do not have a place to live. I, I sentenced a guy just a few months ago who uh, was doing fairly well after some struggles. And I asked him because he was not going to prison, but I said, you need to find a place to live. And he told me, I have a place to live. I have a tent down by the river. And I said, you can't live there. It's winter. It's going to be 20, 30 below. And he said, I lived there all last winter. It's fine. It's a good place to live. And we have way too many people living like that. And when people are living unstable um, lifestyles for, um, through uh, causes related, I think, to uh, childhood and other kinds of trauma, military trauma, sexual trauma, People do not just choose to live in, in this way without um, an explanation that usually goes back to trauma. I think you, more than anyone else I've spoken to in the judiciary, has a fundamental understanding of root causes and how who you see in that courtroom, right, is not just 
that what they did last week, what they did last month. I love this idea that you don't ask, you know, what did you do, but what happened to you? And so this is a great way to transition to a program that I know you've headed up and is really changing people's lives, the Veterans Treatment Court. Can you tell our listeners about kind of when you got started overseeing the court and, and what the model is about? The district has um, had a treatment court, an adult treatment court, and a veterans treatment court going back probably to 2016, 2017. And I took over the veterans treatment court in 2020. Um, and uh, I think it was a good fit for a number of reasons. One is I think I'm the only veteran that's ever presided over a treatment court, a veterans treatment court in, in this state. And I think that continues to be the case. I am not, I did not see combat. I didn't, I am not uh, an infantry um, based veteran. And I have great respect for the people who um, actually um, put themselves in harm's way far more than, than I ever did. But I, I did serve with a lot of people who were carrying shrapnel in their rear end still from Vietnam and from other conflicts. And I think I have an understanding of, of people. And I also like human beings. And so it was a good fit. And so what we're doing is we treat, um, we take the appropriate veterans who served um, in one way or the other uh, in one of our services. Um, they may have been honorably discharged. They may have been other than honorably discharged, but um, they come to us having committed a crime. And by the way, well, I, well, it's, it's critical to me to understand trauma and understand where people came from in order to um, respond to them at the time of sentencing, for example, there's still accountability required and the community expects that. I expect that it's and and every defendant I've, I've met also expects it and needs it. And so we the Veterans Treatment Court, I wish we had a treatment court for all of our criminal defendants because what we have is an extraordinary team of professionals, uh, including you at one time, but people from your your organization who um, we have um, licensed addictions counselors. We have a veteran who's a licensed addictions counselor who has been doing this work for 50 years, um, started treating veterans in the Vietnam War, which is really uh, a remarkable thing. We have uh, uh, probation officers on the state and federal side. One of them is a veteran. We have uh, the Veterans uh, or, or the Vet Center, which is sort of uh, an arm coming out of the uh, VA, um, who, which is staffed by veterans, and they are part of our team, a remarkable uh, group of people who are very supportive and helpful and have mental health and uh, licensed addictions counselors. We have local um, providers who provide uh, mental health and um, uh, other services, including addictions counseling. And um, of course we work hand in hand with groups like uh, Sober Life and Alliance for Youth, which, which provide the, the change in associations that a lot of people need to, in order to maintain, achieve first and then maintain sobriety and mental health, I think. Um, so uh, all of these things work really well. We meet uh, at least weekly. We talk more often than that. I, I really talk about the level of granularity and how supported these folks are. I think 
would be very uplifting to people in our community to understand we are investing really heavily in these folks. So can you just talk about, I mean, what goes on in these staffings? In, in the staffings, we, uh, each of the providers, each of the team members, and that includes law enforcement, we also have a Great Falls Police Department officer who is also a veteran who's very active um, and um, feet on the ground. And by the way, our, our Veterans Treatment Court coordinator is a retired uh, Great Falls Police Department officer. And, and so we have, uh, so that people don't think that this is just um, uh, coddling people. We have people who are very good at um, seeing human beings uh, as entire people. And so uh, people write reports that are, as you said, quite granular and they are submitted in our database. A, a report is then generated and we um, each have the report and we walk through each person who's going to be appearing in court um, that week. Um, we discuss problems, we discuss successes, and we discuss adjustments to the uh, treatment plan that the team has agreed upon. And if we have um, problems that we think we need to work on harder, we um, uh, arrange team meetings with individual participants to try to get to the bottom of what the problem is and try to make an adjustment if needed, or perhaps get that participant to understand uh, the purpose and understand that everyone is on the same page and will support him or her, but um, um, to help him or understand what the plan is. And I just can't emphasize this enough. So I think in our society, there is some tendency to the, the term I use is mistake permissiveness for compassion. And it is not compassionate to not hold people to high standards, to set boundaries. And it's from being in on, you know, just for a few months, these meetings, I think our community should have real confidence in our judiciary. You know, I know the judiciary has been taking a lot of flack, uh, both nationally and to some extent locally, that the professionalism, and for me, it's the, you know, there's a belief that it, the system is sort of this faceless, mechanistic, uh, you know, machine that's just sending people into prison, right? And it's it's quite the opposite. And I, I wish almost, you know, you're like a citizen's academy we have where you know, I get for confidentiality purposes, right? And whatnot, it's not possible. But I just want to, as a one final question, can you give a, a vague kind of success story for our listeners to understand where somebody can come in and where they end up after going through the program? Well, we... Um, I'm thinking of a few people, and one thing I want—I I don't want to lose your question, but one thing I'm really proud of, is, and we've made some changes since I've taken over, is that we, uh, well, um, expungement of a record is a possibility that is rarely done because the public has a right to know, law enforcement has a right to know, and unless we have a person who just has an addiction and possessed a drug because of that addiction, Generally speaking, that record needs to stay there, but we try to have a trade-off there. We've, we've added a relapse prevention program that is available um, after the person graduates. Uh, we have, a, we have a, a rigorous and robust 
uh, alumni group now that meets uh, twice a week uh, and supports these folks. We had 25 people show up uh, last Saturday, I believe, to the alumni group and the uh, current participants come to that and get support and they get support after they graduate because our, our goal is you, you can't just get sober in, in 12 months or 24 months. You've got to have a long-term support plan and, and we uh, are part of that plan now and we provide it um, to to the people that uh, graduate, and I think it's shown some remarkable success. Another change we've made is we've added, um, we now have mentors who are from current conflicts, conflicts that are the same ones that our veterans have, have served in. We have a remarkable number of women veterans, who many of whom are on active duty still, many of whom are combat veterans. I'm really proud of that. We have a lot of um, women veterans who are participants in our program. And um, so I think that that perspective is really important to understand some of these really um, significant changes that have occurred with this this program that I think makes it uh, vigorous. And so I'm thinking of um, we had a recent we had we had a recent graduation where we had a um, one of our and we also have a number of uh, a high proportion of Native American participants who have done extremely well. Who have come out of both the federal uh, system and out of the state system. And I'm thinking of one of our participants who re recently graduated who um, had seen combat, who has been, who, who suffered a, a traumatic brain injury in contact, combat, uh, PTSD in combat, and other uh, trauma uh, throughout his life before entering the military and trauma after the military. And he um, kept throughout, uh, he came from the federal court, he kept getting knocked down um, during his time uh, in the veterans treatment court. And because of the support, he, he had some just significant, uh, horrible losses to his uh, members of his family that were uh, would have taken anyone to their knees and over and over and over again. And because of the support, we were able to provide to him. He is now um, employed. He's raising uh, children. He's contributing to the community, and um, he is still uh, addressing his own sobriety. Um, and uh, I, I'm not going to use his name, but I think he's. It's a pretty. Uh, it's it's a pretty remarkable story, and it's also a, a not uncommon story. And I think that that's the the key part is that a lot of times we say, you know, we're, we're in search of a, a solution where I, th I think the, the veterans treatment court as uh, kind of, you know, let's say uh, reformed by you has really found that balance of keeping people accountable while also supporting them. And I'd like to know, uh, have you had discussions in, in kind of in a systemic way with other veterans and drug treatment courts about, you know, some of the, the changes you've made here in Great Falls and, and how they could support courts elsewhere? I, I've talked to other other judges. I keep in pretty close contact with other judges. I've talked to other coordinators. And of course, we now have a, a really consistent, I think, pretty um, vigorous training program for everyone on the team that is ongoing and constant which which is um, very helpful, but um, we are now more consistent with other courts throughout the state and I think throughout the country we are um, we are probably type A about trying to follow best practices. 
and um, probably to a point where people feel like they have a throbbing headache at some point, but I think it's been to everyone's advantage. And, and so um, other courts don't expunge um, as a general rule. Other courts um, uh, do things like relapse prevention and have other programming. And we're always looking for additional creative ways to, um, to improve our chances of success and improve the uh, participant support that they get from us and from the community. Uh, and I think, I, th I think that the court feels for the most part to participants like it is a community. And that's why I said, I wish we could do this for everyone because yes, there are some people who belong in prison. Absolutely. I have sent people away for life. And, uh, you know, the, that is, those are some of the hardest things in the world to do is sentence people in any kind of case. But there are many, many people who just need support to uh, most people don't want to be um, addict, addicted or drunks or um, meth heads. Most people do not want to be. They want to be parents. They love their kids. They want to be employees. They love to work. They want to be part of their community because they love it, but they can't get out by themselves. And if they're stuck in addiction or a mental health crisis, they can't. The only thing they can do is act on impulse because their brain has literally changed. You you hit this. So we, you know, you came and spoke to the Rotary Club of Great Falls. And I think that was kind of the impetus for, for this interview. And I, I want you to give our listeners a real understanding of that, of the brain change, because I, I fundamentally don't think people generally are aware that this is a biochemical change that happens in people. Well, I, I'm not a real doctor. But um, I, I think I would encourage anyone who's listening to just uh, Google a SPECT, S-P-E-C-T, or PET scan um, you, of uh, someone on meth or someone on cocaine or someone on probably any drug. Um, the, the brain is uh, physiologically changed in a way that um, it, it only wants to get the next hit of dopamine. Uh, which is which is the rush that you get with a, a high from any chemical that is intended to alter your mental state, and and um, the the changes in the wiring of our brains when when we pour those chemicals in there or we inhale them in or we inject them in um, results in our inability to to think any other way than impulsively. We no longer have the physiological capacity to think rationally. So when we say that guy should just quit choosing to use meth. That doesn't compute in terms of what the brain is capable of doing. So if a person is, is given support, he's still going or she is still going to trip and fall occasionally because the brain is still healing and it takes two or three years for it to start looking normal on a PET scan if it's clean for that time. So if we have human support and the kinds of structure we have through these treatment court teams around the person, we can help them stay upright for the most part until their brain heals and they can start thinking rationally, which is uh, if I do this, then it's the um, take 10 deep breaths before you do something that's lost with with impulsivity. Absolutely. And you talk about it's that cognitive behavioral therapy is the one that I know has shown great, uh, you know, efficaciousness and, and that it's so simple, right? It's that you've got to be able to say, here are my 
you know, thoughts, right? Lead to my actions, lead to consequences. And if you can change people's thinking and their actions, you're going to get different consequences. And it's so simple, but to your point, if you miss the key puzzle piece that we have to have some accountability, right? But to be there supporting them so they can get to a place where the brain is rationally able to make decisions uh, without turning to drugs uh, to fill that dopamine deficit. Exactly. And so so we take them, we, we go through phases and we don't expect as much with someone who's in phase one, for example. We expect them to maybe be, be capable of continually showing up to where they're supposed to be. And then we, we continue to add accountability. Someone who's in phase five, we would expect if you use at that stage and, and we test them, we use urinalyses, we use drug patches, we don't just count on them to tell us the truth. Um, but we'll, the, the consequences will be heavier at that point. Um, and there are some people, frankly, who they have to be um, willing to invest their uh, willingness to invest in themselves um, to succeed here too. It requires their effort as well. And if they are not willing, if they go through five phases and they are still manipulating and lying to us and unwilling to engage and be truthful with themselves, then we may have to terminate them from treatment court and they may end up uh, with the Department of Corrections instead. And that is the ultimate consequence. Yeah, and, and I do think it's important to note that you know, it's easy to kind of critique things from the outside and point to what doesn't work or where there's a flaw. But I do think it's important to recognize that the, the quote unquote status quo, right, is to put people in prison for long periods of time. And we know based on recidivism statistics that it is not a long-term solution, right? They always say, Almost everybody that's in prison is going to come out of prison. Right. We are not currently in our correctional system having people come out of prison and have good outcomes. And if we send them to prison, if that's our sentence instead of a treatment court, we often pass them in the revolving door on their way back out. They don't, you know, it, for a homicide, obviously that's different, but for many of these offenses, they don't stay long enough to achieve any sort of sober stability to succeed on the outside. And then they will be right back with us uh, in the system again. Because I think that's something that's really important to understand is there are no quote unquote good options, right? right. That anybody that's not willing to take half a loaf, right? And understand that if we invest here on the front end, right? we are going to one and on a personal human level fundamentally change people's life trajectory restore them as you know productive members of our community but two for those that are kind of the hey you know you you did the the the, the crime you got to pay the time right that have a sort of you know take the humanity aspect out of it it's better to do this for taxpayers for everyone it it, it truly is just a better penal uh, philosophy. I think I think it is, and I think if we just think practically, um, we don't need to think. Uh, you know, if if humane humanely thinking about this is is something that doesn't work for you, 
um, thinking practically about it, we see people who succeed come out, start working, start paying taxes, as you said, and they also start repairing really damaged relationships with their families, with their acquaintances, with employers, with people they've made contact with. And um, those repairs are in all of our best interests as well. Um, they're reintegrated so that they can pr produce for the rest of the community. So, and I, I really, the number one thing I hear about programs, you know, treatment courts, right, is you'll hear so much about the expense of them, right? And I, I think that that's a canard in that it's not taking into account a kind of lifetime expenditures on someone who's cycling in and out of, you know, jails, institutions. Stealing pickup trucks, breaking into houses. And, and that you're paying some multiple more. Uh, it's just that cost is sort of baked into your thinking. Uh, yet it's what's driving a lot of our spending, right? And, and if I think you so, yeah. I, and I think, you know, I don't get paid any extra for doing this. I do it because I believe in it. Um, our staff is paid um, pretty low, um, low wages, really state type, type wages, but, but I have two people on staff. Um, the people on the team, some of them, the pro providers get paid usually at the Medicaid rate. Uh, everyone else, the, our probation officers are not getting paid extra. Our police officers are not getting paid extra. The people on this team, the VA folks, are not getting paid extra. We have VA representatives, as I mentioned, uh, on here on this team. We have vet center representatives. They're not getting paid extra. The citizens are not paying anyone extra. Everyone is doing this because we think it makes a difference, not just to these people, which is enough for me, but but to the community as a whole. Now, what are, so the idea of having a, a kind of quasi-treatment court for everyone, or at least expanding it out, is funding a limitation? I suppose, um, you know, I've never had the conversation with anyone, but I think it would take, it would probably take, if we did it for everyone, you would probably have to have some, some full-time judge handling it. You'd have to have, probably have a few more staffers because our the people on our staffs individually interact with our participants multiple times a day and are preparing reports, interacting with providers, interacting with the team. Um, so, you know, there's only so much time in the day. So you would have to increase the number of bodies and we might need another devoted courtroom for it. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure our legislature is ready to devote that kind of money, but I, I think that Frankly, if we didn't have addictions and mental health issues uh, to deal with, and I don't, it's not unique to Cascade County, but we probably, we could probably cut the number of ordinary courts we have in, in quarters. Um, even with child abuse and neglect, we see the same families in our criminal cases as we see frequently, not always, but frequently in our abuse and neglect cases because those are cases where generally we're dealing with addictions and mental health issues and trauma. The, the, the two numbers that really jump out to me always are, and this is in Cascade County, the first number is 80% of child removals are related to substance abuse. Yeah, that's fair. And, and it's then very it, rare that, you know, the 
the cliche of, of someone just, it happens. I'm not saying it doesn't happen that a parent will beat a child, but that's the, the more common scenario is neglect, severe neglect and exposure to drugs. And then the other one in terms of, and this is on expenditures, right, is that this is a state number, right, a DPHHS, Department of Health and Human Services, that 40% of emergency room visits in the state of Montana are drug alcohol related. Yeah, I believe that. I'm surprised it's that low. If you think of like Medicaid spending, right, as a percentage of state budget, as it is a major driver, right, for all taxpayers, and so what I what I try to tell people, because it, it's it's hard when you ask for for more money and, they, sure. and the taxpayers rightfully so say, hey, I've you know, we're spending a lot. It's not the amount of money spent per se. It's where it's going. Right. And I, I tell you get what you pay for. Yep. And if you want to keep paying for acute interventions, right, whether on the addiction side, right, you want to pay for an ER to see somebody. Right. Send them back out. Have them come back we can keep doing what we're doing right? and you will not see any changes in outcomes and you'll keep spending the money. We have to take, and I think treatment courts is why I like this are that they are a proactive approach. They're not simply the reactive arrest, arraign, charge, you know, yep. off to jail. Well, one thing we could do in this County and most of the major counties in Montana do have this and we don't yet but we hold people an awful long time. We have 420 people in our jail and it doesn't hold more than I think 375 or something. Um, we have today, as of today, and there most of them are awaiting trial. Um, I have been uh, working very hard with a lot of people, including our county attorney who um, uh, favors this idea to try to get a pretrial supervision program going here, which would do a lot of the same things. It would be maybe, a, it's not a treatment court because we have a presumption of innocence and people have not yet had a disposition of their case, but um, many of these people are addicted and have mental health challenges who need to get back into or just into a regular treatment. And so the idea would be monitoring them to make sure not to see what's going on in their appointments, just make sure you're getting to your chemical dependency evaluation and then following through, getting your mental health evaluation and then following through um, and getting to your court hearings. Um, if we had that, um, we would be saving a lot of money. We're, we're probably spending $90 a day for each person up at that jail. We could be spending 25 or 30 bucks a day to supervise them in the community safely. Not everyone, you know, there are some people that should remain in jail because of community safety. But a lot of people, if we had if we had them on a sobriety and mental health path, they would be safe in the community. They would be ultimately accountable because they would they would see a judge, they would see a jury if they that was their choice. They would be sentenced if they were found guilty. But in the meantime, they would be um, on a path to sobriety and mental health. Absolutely. And so I, I want to take our last uh, about 10 minutes here and, and take a broad picture of the judiciary. But before I do so, do you have anything that you really want our listeners to know that we haven't covered about the eighth judicial district? The only other thing I would add, because I didn't finish answering your question, um, is my idea about our courtroom space. And I, and I think it's a, I think some people um, believe that if they walk past one of our courtrooms and there's no one in it at that moment that we're not using them. 
And um, what's going on behind the courtrooms is that we, perhaps a, a case has been settled, uh, perhaps um, a case has been continued, but in the meantime, the judges and their staff are in the back writing orders and doing research and responding to emergencies, um, signing search warrants, signing uh, arrest warrants, uh, doing any number of things that have to do with the cases. And having a courtroom available is critical if we expect the parties to believe that they can um, get into the courtroom and um, expeditiously resolve their case. So my thought is we have a beautiful jail that is not being used, but our commissioners had um, the great foresight to get asbestos removed out of it. If it were me, if I were able to wave a wand, I would suggest that we take half of it, rent it, or lease it to law offices or other businesses who wanted to uh, use it, because I think it could be a beautiful um, building if it were remodeled. Uh, use the other half for youth court services um, and for perhaps CASA, which would free up, uh, and for maybe the Justice Court, which would free up space in, in the lower, uh, the first floor of the building to um, uh, for uh, another district court uh, room that we could uh, more efficiently use our time and space and make ourselves available to the parties. Absolutely. And I guess the one other need, if we have a citizen here that wants to support their fellows doing their, you know, uh, duty in, in jury service, what, what's the need there? Well, we we try a lot of cases. Um, actually, in, in recent years, even though Yellowstone County is twice our, uh, our size, we have either done as many uh, jury trials criminally or uh, uh, more than Yellowstone County. So we're busy. And, and so we have, um, we have our citizens who come in, take their jury duty seriously, and we have um, very old jury boxes. And the chairs in the jury boxes, I love them. I uh, happen to like uh, turn of the century Western furniture, but it's pretty rickety, it's pretty small, it's very uncomfortable, and jurors tell me all the time um, that they're very uncomfortable. It's hard for them to sit for long periods of time and getting in and out of the box, I worry, and I think the other judges do too, that, that someone's gonna break a hip getting in and out of there. If you look around the state even, if you watch Court TV or any of these other um, programs around the country, pretty uniformly people have figured out ways to get comfortable seating for jurors, and that's my pitch. I would like to have better seating for our jurors so that when they do come to be heroes and do service for their democracy, they're not crippled up. Absolutely. So, you know, listeners, that's your open invitation. If you have <laughs> thoughts on uh, chairs and an inside that, uh, that would be comfortable for our, our citizen jurors serving, uh, you know, reach talk, out. Talk to the commissioners and I'm sure they'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. And so the last one now I want to give is on the, the judicial branch writ large. And I just want you to give our listeners your quote unquote judicial philosophy. So when you have, you know, this immense responsibility entrusted to you to be a neutral arbiter, what are your kind of guiding principles as you take the bench? Well, my my guiding principle has always been that the um, the courtroom is the people's courtroom, and it should be available. We have a right to access to the judges, to the courts, a fundamental right in our Montana constitution, which is a 
remarkable document. I, I've been all over the country and people have come up to me and said, you're from Montana, you have the most amazing constitution. And we do. And we have a right to access to the courts. We have a right to full legal redress. We have a right to a jury trial. We, these are fundamental rights that we have. And we recognize that these rights came from the people, not from the government to the people, but the people uh, have the rights and they have provided, they have given certain powers to the government, but the people limit them. So um, that is my guiding philosophy is to provide uh, open doors to the courts for everybody. Um, that being said, um, in this day and time, um, we also need to recognize that the courthouse and our courthouse is wide open, should be a safe place for all citizens and uh, it, including our staff and including judges and including citizens who are there for a marriage license or for um, to file something in the court and for our lawyers who are in and out of their day in and day out and for our maintenance staff who are keeping us safe. Um, we should have a safe place. We shouldn't, people come to our courthouse who are in the greatest crisis of their lives usually. And they're in under an enormous stress, enormous um, trauma. Uh, we can't know what, what they're enduring. No one can know what any person you pass in the hall is enduring. And we live in a time when people tend, we talked about acting impulsively, people tend to act impulsively sometimes. I think we need to have a sense of safety there a sense of security. Um, I, I do think that we need to uh, increase that in our county. I think we need to take advantage of um, metal detectors, for instance. We It would be nice if we could increase the number of our very good law enforcement officers in the building, just so that everyone feels safe. Um, and I know people like to, you know, dislike judges um, because judges make these difficult decisions, but there's a lot of other people in the building that deserve to be safe. Absolutely. And I do want to say, you know, it's really hard. It's easy to sit on the outside of any institution and take pot shots at it. But I, I hope that our, our listeners can have an appreciation for the day to day of, of what your life is like. And I know you love it. And, and it's not that it's a, a sacrifice complaint, but that objectively, right, it, it is a great time commitment it is a a uh a hard like you said you are dealing with folks who are having one of the worst days of their life every day that's your every day is a lineup of people that are having one of the worst days of their life yeah it is it, it is that's that's a fair way of saying it and i'm again i'm not complaining i know you're acknowledging that but you know if you see if you see that a judge is not physically in the building or if you think the judge isn't there i guarantee you that judge is working somewhere and we work uh i get up i was just up uh two nights ago in the middle of the night for an arrest warrant um, it is not unusual for any of us to be up in the middle of the night for search warrants or arrest warrants or over the weekends. And if we're not doing that, we're writing or responding to any any number of other issues. So um, we're not fooling around and we're trying very hard to get the work done for the people. We know that's our job. Uh, and I think um, it's it's viewed as a, an honor. I certainly view it as an honor. I, I feel a great sense of responsibility, but it's an honor to be in this seat. So I'm glad to be there. Well, there's best. I don't think we could have a better ending because I, I do think uh, it is uh, an honor uh, to interview you 
And I, I hope our listeners fundamentally understand that we can disagree uh, about, you know, the, the right way to handle crime or a number of uh, issues, right, that are pertinent to the judiciary, but that they can have confidence that our judiciary is working on behalf of the people. And so despite any ideological differences you may have, please respect that you have folks that have dedicated their life you know, day in and day out to, to making tough calls in tough situations. And to respect, I, I appreciate that. And, and I have great respect for the people that appear in front of me. You know, I, I think every single person deserves the same respect and, and I hope that they feel like they got it and it doesn't matter who they are. Judge Bassett, it's truly been an honor. Thank you so much been for coming on. Thank you. That was Judge Elizabeth Best. Uh, judge in the 8th Judicial District of Montana, and you have been listening to Voices and Views on Great Falls Public Radio, KGPR 89.9. As a final note to listeners, Judge Best takes the idea of the open court and that this is the people's house very seriously. And after the interview, uh, reached out and wanted to make sure that our listeners knew that there is an open invitation to come to observe her criminal docket, which is typically starting at 8 a.m. to noon on Mondays, and then also to sit in on Veterans Treatment Court, which is at 1 p.m. on Tuesdays, and that is in the old post office. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about KGPR, please visit our website, kgpr.org where you can find a link to donate, links to all of our other locally produced programming, and information about your local voice, KGPR Great Falls.